We're doing a series called Our Strange Bible. And this story here fits in the midst of definitely strange Bible. King of Israel goes to see someone to call on a ghost. Ghost comes up out of the ground and speaks. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? So we're going to take a look at this story today and try and see a couple of things. One is how it fits in the bigger story of the Bible, why this story is told, and then what might it have to do with us today? So we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and implies there's a 2 Samuel, and there's a 1 and 2 Samuel, and it's really just one long book. It's been broken up into two parts, but really one long book. And so the people of God, the Israelites, have come to the land that God has promised them. And the book of Judges is this time of turmoil, and chaos is going on. The book of Samuel introduces a time where the people of God look around. They look at all the other nations around them, and they see that they're different from everyone else because everyone else has a king. They're kings over all the other countries. And God has told the people of Israel they don't need a king because he's their king. But the people of God say, but we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so God says, I'm warning you, if you get a king, bad things happen. They'll tax you. They'll send you off to war. They'll take away your daughters. They'll take your property away from you. And the people say, we don't care. We want a king. So God says, here you go. I'll give you a king. And he appoints a man named Samuel that the book is named after to be a prophet and chooses Samuel to pick the first king, well, to, to, to anoint the first king. God chooses the first king, but to be the one who anoints him, this pouring of oil and saying, this will be your king. And the first king of Israel is a man named Saul. Now, if you looked at Saul, you saw this man, this would be the kind of person you say, that's the kind of king we want. Saul is described as a big, tall guy. He's a handsome guy. He's a great warrior. He's the kind that everybody looks at. Oh, that's exactly the kind of king we need. And so the book of 1 Samuel introduces Saul. But as the story progresses, we see that while Saul is big and tall and handsome and a great warrior, he has some serious character flaws. He's not very honest. He doesn't always trust God. And so the story of 1 Samuel is this rise of Saul and then Saul's fall. And meanwhile, there's another man that the book of 1 Samuel introduces, a man named David, who becomes the second king. And while Saul is falling, you see David starting to rise. And so in the big story of the Bible, it's this way that these stories fit together. Because in the big story, God's people are waiting for an anointed one, an anointed king to be the ruler over them, to restore all the things, to restore Israel as a nation. But more than that, to help be a part of God's purpose to restore all of creation. And so they're in expectation. They're saying, one day we'll have this anointed one, an anointed king who will set all things right. And so when Saul, the king, comes along, they think, here he is. Look at this guy. This is everything we could possibly want. And by about chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, we start to see it's not the case. And by the time we come to chapter 28 of Samuel, 
it's down, we're down in the gutter. It's going way, way down. And so here we come to the story. And it starts off, it says, now Samuel was dead. We were told that story a few chapters earlier. But the narrator, the writer wants to remind us of that because that's the setting for the story. Because Samuel was the one who had helped Saul. He was the one who was Saul's kingmaker. He was the one who prophesied for Saul. He was the one who interceded for Saul. He was the one who helped Saul hear from God. So Samuel is dead, is setting the story and saying, Saul doesn't have this prophet anymore. Not only that, Samuel being dead for the Israelites, and there's some debate over the conception of what this looked like, but in Israelite thinking, most likely in the times of the Old Testament, when people were dead, they went to the realm of the dead or Sheol. And so there was this change in geography, if you will. So Samuel being dead meant he was down here. And now for us, in our modern terms, oftentimes we think of the place down below, we think of as the place of like a punishment and of, of hell. But that's not what the Old Testament people thought of. It was that everyone who died went to Sheol, the realm of the dead. And you read the Old Testament, you see these things about Prayers going up, and I'm in the grave, I'm in the watering grave, I'm in the place of shale. In other words, the realm of death. And so the story says Samuel was dead. In other words, he's not around anymore, and he's down there somewhere. Then it goes on and says, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. God's people had a set of rules to live by, to be different from all the nations around them. To be different from all the things around. And one of the things that God said was, you have to be different in this way. I don't want mediums and spirits. In other words, people who talk to the dead. I don't want you talking to them because that's not the thing. Because the people of that day had a conception of the gods could be controlled. Now, the people of Israel worshipped one god, Yahweh, but the nations around worshipped numerous other gods like Baal. And so they worshipped these gods, but they believed in something we might call magic, where the gods could be controlled. If you made the right sacrifice, if you said the right words, if you, you said the proper incantation and did everything in the right way, the gods had to listen to you. It was a way to control the gods. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, said, no, I am not controlled like that. You can't simply say the right words or do this incantation. I'm not a vending machine. You don't just put in your thing and automatically get out what you want. And so God prohibited, said, no, no spiritists, no mediums, don't do that. So we read the story and we think, Saul's doing pretty good here. He's doing what God wants. He says, we don't want to be infected by the religion around us. Kick out the spiritists, kick out the mediums. And so you start chapter 28 saying, wow, this is good. Samuel's dead, but Saul's doing the right thing. Until we read a few more verses. It says, The Philistines assembled and came up and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. So the Philistines were these people who were in the land, and they were supposed to be kicked out. They're not out yet. Verse 5, When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. So now we start to think, wait a minute. Saul was doing pretty good. He was kicking out the spirit to the medium. 
but now he's living in fear of the Philistines, the Philistines whom God had promised that he would drive them out. And so Saul's saying, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I, I'm getting a little bit scared. I'm getting a little bit worried. I'm seeing something, and I don't know what to do. And he does what many of us do when we start to get a little bit afraid, when we let fear start to take over. Sometimes we make poor choices. When we get a little bit afraid, when we start to become afraid of things, we aren't guided in the right way. We let that fear drive our things, especially when, I mean, there's, there's, there's the good kind of caution. There's the good kind of fear. But there's the bad fear where it's like, this is not something you should be afraid of. There's not something to worry about. And Saul lets it begin to drive him. And so he starts off and he inquires of God. But it says, God did not answer him by dreams or Urim, which was basically casting of lots, or the prophets. Side note, go back a few chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, and Saul killed a whole bunch of prophets. So there aren't, what, what, there aren't a whole lot of prophets left to listen to. But God's not giving him answers. The thing is, Saul knew the answers, but he's sitting there, he's saying, God, he's not seeking God's will. He, he wants God's guidance. He wants God to, to program and tell him, Saul, do this. And so Saul's saying, well, I, I tried to talk to God, and now my fear says, I got to come up with something else. I got to figure out a plan some other way. How else am I going to know what to do? If God's not telling me what to do, what can I do? So Saul says to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium. And the word, the Hebrew word there is uh, almost be translated a, a ghost mistress or a ghost wife. Someone who hung out with the dead and who's associated. Wait a minute, just a few chapters or a few verses earlier, we're told Saul kicked them all out. And now Saul says, find me one. So if you're one of his attendants, you're thinking, wait a minute, Saul, how are we supposed to do that? You kicked them all out. But they go and they find one. They say, well, we know where there's one. And you kind of wonder, how did they know there was one? But they go and find one. And Saul disguises himself. He doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't want to be seen as doing what he's about to do. And he goes to this woman and he says, consult a spirit for me and bring up for me the one I know. And there's that language, bring up for me, bring up from the realm of the dead. And we have to be careful. That these stories aren't given to us to spell out a full geography of the underworld and everything. They're told to tell a point. But Saul comes and says, consult the spirit, bring up for the one I name. And the woman says, wait a minute now. Saul said, Saul kicked all of us out. If he finds out, they might kill me. She's smarter than he is. She knows what's right and what's wrong. And Saul says, no, 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 they're never going to happen. You won't be punished. So the woman says, well, who do, you, who do you want? Who do you want me to call? Saul says, well, bring up Samuel. And then there's this strange verse. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. At which point we have some questions. We're like, well, what made her scream and shout? We don't know. How did she figure out he was Saul? We don't know. See, because the Bible doesn't always answer the questions we want answered. It's telling a story. 
And part of the story here is it's not concerned with what made the woman shout. It's just she has this strange reaction. Maybe all along she was just a huckster, and she'd never actually seen a ghost. She just pretended. Because as we read along, Saul's kind of like, well, what do you see? And so if you've ever watched movies or those things that the people always come in and they pay some money to somebody to talk to the dead and the person kind of talks and they're like, well, what do you see? And they're relying completely on that other person. And so maybe that's the case is she had always done that and people would come to her and say, oh, let me talk to my dad. And she would kind of figure out a way and tell him nice things and stuff. She never saw anything and now she calls for a spirit from the dead and one actually shows up and she's like, whoa, didn't expect that to happen. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know. But she's kind of surprised by this and, and she cries out. And the king says to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? Well, a ghostly figure coming out of the earth. What does he look like? And so we know Saul doesn't see yet. Well, an old man wearing a robe. And so somehow Saul figures out that Samuel. I, again, I don't know. How did he know? It's like, oh, because my guess is there were a lot of dead guys who were old men wearing robes. But somehow she knew, or Saul knows that this is Samuel. And Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Saul says, well, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are fighting and God has departed from me. He doesn't answer me, so I called on you. At which point, Samuel says, well, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you? And so there's this interesting part where Saul comes and strangely enough, he expects Samuel to answer him. Saul, who has gone and consulted a spiritist, a medium, a ghost wife, who he knows God doesn't want him to. Saul, who has tried to consult the dead, which is against God's laws. Saul, who has been continually disobedient, now all of a sudden thinks Samuel is going to give him an answer. And Samuel says, no, not going to do that. Samuel says to him, in effect, I told you everything you needed to know when I was alive. I gave you the word of God, and you didn't listen then. And God's message hasn't changed. So if you want something new, I don't have anything new for you. I'm just going to tell you what I already told you. And what I've already told you is, you are no longer God's chosen one. And in order to do that, we don't have time to read the previous seven, 27 chapters of Samuel, and you'll see all these things that Samuel did. But essentially, Samuel is saying to Saul, it doesn't work this way. You can't just call on me now because I'm going to give you the same message I gave you before. And then it goes on, this whole thing where Saul gets hungry and, and all that. But I want us to think about a couple of things as we think about what do we do with this story? Part of the, what we see in the story is how it fits in the big story of the Bible. And in the big story of the Bible, again, I've told, I said already, the people of God are looking for the anointed one, the anointed king to come and to rescue them. And there's this hope that it's Saul. And now we already see that it's not Saul. Saul has, has gone beyond. 
And on the other hand, there's this other king coming up named David. And there's a contrast between Saul and between David because Saul isn't consulting God. And when he is, he's trying it through dead people. But if you read the story of David, David's going and he's consulting God here and he's consulting God before he does these things and God is responding. And so part of what's happening in the story is you're getting a sense of expectation saying, oh, maybe David's the one. Maybe David is going to be the true king, the anointed king who will save us and save Israel. So that's part of what's going on. And we'll come back to that at the end. But one of the other things, two other things that are going on. One is, notice what Saul did. Way back at the beginning of the story, what did we hear that Saul did? He kicked out all the spiritists and mediums. He said, no more of that. We're not going to have any of that in my country. But when it came time, what did he do? He went to see a ghost wife. He went to see a spiritist. In other words, Saul drove it out all around in the land all around him. But he didn't really drive it out of his heart. I think this is a helpful thing for us to think about. Because Jesus says something in the Gospel of Matthew. Where he's teaching his disciples. And he tells his disciples. He said, sometimes you see other people doing something wrong. He said, but before you say something to them, before you take that little splinter out of their eye, take that two by four, that plank out of your own eye. Jesus says, when you're looking at people to correct them, he says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then do it. He never says, it's not okay to, Jesus doesn't say, well, just worry about your own plank and don't worry about the other guy. He says it's okay to worry about the other guy. He says, but first deal with yourself. I think that's part of what we see in the story of Saul. Is This is Saul is a reminder that it's oftentimes easy to point out all the problems around us, to kick it all out around and not deal with what's inside. So as a church, and I mean church big C, the church around, and I'll say the church in the United States, this has sometimes been a problem for the church. We're real good at sitting back in the church and looking around and saying, look at all the bad things going on out there. And never stop to see what's going on in here. We'll look around and say, look, there's this LGBTQ plus agenda going out there and sexuality is going downhill. But we never notice that divorce rates and adultery rates and all oh, so many other things are no different in the church than around the rest of the world. And so it's a reminder, it's not to say that we shouldn't stand in a place sometimes to critique the culture and to say things, but it's also a reminder that we need to clean up our own hearts. We need to deal with what's going on inside of ourselves first. It's easy to be like Saul and say, I'm going to kick out all those people out there and never deal with in our own heart. So we as a church need to sometimes look and say, what's going on in our hearts? What's going on in our church before we start looking around the world? In other words, like Jesus said, pull the plank out and then deal with it. But maybe it's not as a church. Maybe it's us as individuals, a reminder for us because I know it's easier for me to see the faults in others 
than it is to see the faults in myself. May not be true for any of you. Maybe one or two of you. But it is for me. I can see, I can see these things. And so it's a reminder. Maybe we read this story of Saul and we think, when we look around and we see somebody else and we think, oh man, what's that guy's problem? He seems so impatient. What's that guy's problem? Or what's that person's problem? She seems like such a gossip. What's that man's problem? He seems so greedy. Maybe it's an invitation to say, before I start trying to kick out all the spiritists and mediums, maybe I need to make sure that those things don't have root in my own heart. Because when they exist in our own heart, when the moment of fear comes, it's easy to shift into the fear and to do the wrong thing. It's easy to sit in church and to say, no, I would never steal something. I would never take from somebody. I would never lie to somebody. But then in that moment, that moment of fear, that moment of, oh, wait, if somebody finds that out, I'm going to get in trouble. If somebody finds out, if I lose my job, then I'm not going to be able to feed my family. And there's a moment of fear that takes over, and we respond out of that moment of fear. And you may have heard me say this before, is there's something we have a tendency to do where sometimes we respond some way, we, we lose our temper, or we do something in the moment, we say, oh, that's not who I am. And one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, said, no, that's exactly who you are. When we respond from some way on the inside, it's a reminder of who we are on the inside and that God wants to change and transform us on the inside. We can sometimes get into sin management. We can manage the behaviors and try and look good from the outside, but we have to deal with what's going on in the heart. So one lesson we might take is it's not just about the spiritists and the mediums and the land. It's about dealing with those things in our heart. The second thing is a reminder about magic. And you think, I don't practice magic. What do I do? But remember what magic was. And sometimes it's not always easy in the Bible. What's magic and what's not? I mean, you got Moses turning a staff into a snake and the magicians and there's axe heads floating and all these things. But magic was what? It was a way to manipulate. It was a way to control God. And sometimes we fall into that same pattern. We sometimes think that if I do this, then God will do that. So we look at our lives and we say, but God, why is this happening to me? I showed up at church every Sunday. But God, why is that person not getting well? I had 5,221 people on my prayer chain all praying for them. And they're not getting well. Because we start to think that we can control what God does by the things we do. That if I just do the right things, if I say the right words, if I give the right amount, if I show up in the right places, if I put on the right front, then God will respond in a certain way. That's magic. And it's not the Bible. So this is a reminder as we read the story of Saul that God will not be manipulated. God will not be controlled. God is sovereign. God is in control. And God will respond in ways that God chooses to respond in. And so it's, while we may not be tempted to go and consult the dead, there may be ways where we approach in the same way where if God doesn't seem to be doing what we want, 
we seek another way to make God do what we want. God's not in the habit of being made to do what we want. In fact, God doesn't work that way at all. We can't make God do anything. And that's what Saul does. And attempts to do it. It's a reminder to that. So take out the spiritists, the mediums in our own heart before we deal with the ones around in the land. Realize that God cannot be manipulated. And the final thing is, and this is where it fits in that big story, is we see that Saul was not the anointed king that was chosen to be. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. The Greek word is Christos or Christ. And the story also reminds us ultimately that there is no human king. There is no king who was able to save us. There was no king who was perfect. We see David, and David has his own decline and fall, and his son Solomon after him. And after that, the, the kings of northern Israel and the kings of southern Israel. And time after time, they let us down until a time in history where God sent his son to be the true king, to be the anointed king, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, to save us. And so it's a reminder, too, that where do we put our hope? We cannot put our hope in human kings, but we have one who we can put our hope in. We have one anointed king, an anointed king who came and lived a life and who showed us what it looks like to love children and to love the outcasts and to love the lepers and to love the poor. An anointed king who showed us his power and his rule over creation. An anointed king who gave his life on a cross for our salvation, for our forgiveness. An anointed king whom God raised from the dead and showed that death and sin and the devil had been defeated. An anointed king who now sits at the right hand of God, who sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to change and to transform our lives, to help kick out all those powers. And that anointed king says, I want to be your king. And so when we say, I'm asking Jesus into my life, we're saying, Jesus, I want you to be king. You are the one true king, and I want to live under you, and I want to call you King Jesus and no one else. I want to serve you and love you and be your child. And so as we read these stories, we're reminded always that the story story of the Bible is one continuous story that points us to Jesus. And so we take this story and Jesus is the one who helps us deal with those things in our heart when we're looking at the world around us. Jesus is the one who helps us deal with it when we're trying to manipulate by God by magic. Jesus is the one who deals with all of our problems, but we have to give our lives to him. We can't do it any other way. He asks us to say, Jesus, you are king. Jesus, you are Lord. And so that's what I would invite us to do, Tate Church, is to proclaim that, to say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are king. Jesus, I need you. And we may need Jesus for different reasons. It may not be these problems, but whatever problems that we have, whatever challenges we're facing, whatever things are going on in our life, whatever sins we've committed, whatever shame we feel, whatever struggles we have, Jesus says, give it to me because I am the anointed king. I am the one true king who is making all things new and making all things right. 
So my invitation to you is, if you haven't done that, to give your life to King Jesus. To say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I need you. I can't do it on my own anymore. And that's ultimately the call. You can phrase it any way you want, but ultimately in the end it's saying, Jesus, I can't do it on my own anymore. I need you to be my king, to be my savior, to be my Lord, to be my friend. And if you've done that at some point, then to continue to serve him as king. Because that's the temptation always. We can say, Jesus, you're my king, and then the next day we're making ourselves back on the throne. And so maybe it's a chance to recommit and say, Jesus, I failed. And we can do that each and every day, can't we? Say, Jesus, I messed up. But Jesus, you are my king and my Lord. So let's close our time in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you of the stories that you give us, of the reminders of your grace and your love. God, we're reminded, reminded in the stories of the Bible of how flawed and feeble we all are. But in the end, the story of the Bible is a story that tells us that you loved us and that you came for us. And so, God, as we close our time together, we pray. And if we need to, we ask, we give our lives to you, King Jesus. And if we've done that, God, we commit our lives to you, to follow you as our King, to serve you and to love you each and every day. So, God, help us by the power of your Spirit to serve you and to call on you and to say, Jesus, you are Lord and you are King. Amen.